Welcome to Nepal Now, I'm Marty Logan. Nepalis are online, full stop. We can no longer say that Nepalis in cities are online or that educated Nepalis are online. In a 2020 survey, 89% of Nepalis said that they use Facebook. 62% of the mobile phones that people carried around were smartphones, and the figure was growing. The COVID-19 pandemic has surely caused it to rise further. This has huge implications for many aspects of people's lives. In this episode, I talk about a number of those with Shuba Kayasta of Body and Data. Do people know who's watching them when they're online? Or who is able to watch them? Do they know what steps they can take to find out? Is big tech really trying to make it easier for you to protect your privacy online? What about the government? We discuss how women, queer people, and members of other marginalized groups are trolled and bullied. Hint, it's got a lot to do with power distribution, and it echoes what happens in the physical world. I really enjoyed this chat. It made me think about some pretty basic things in very different ways. I guess that's why this episode is a bit longer than usual. But please, take the extra time if you can. It's worth it. And now, here's my chat with Shuba Kayasta. Shuba Kayasta, welcome to Nepal Now podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Marty, for for inviting me to be part of this podcast. So I think it's pretty clear to people who spend time online that uh, women, queer people, and members of minority groups are bullied, trolled, and otherwise threatened on the internet more than other people. So I'm wondering, your organization, Body and Data, is, is one of its primary aims to make the internet safer for those groups of people? or to teach them how to navigate the internet more safely, or a bit of both? Thank you, Marty, for that question. And I like how you have emphasized certain community in your questions, like women, queer folks, and other minority groups. And and you're right. You're right about how the troll and threats and bullying on the internet to these communities are being more visible, right? And it's probably more increasing. Um, while I answer your question, I would also like to mention um, what we see and experience in the internet is not in isolation from what we see and experience in the real life, right? Or we call IRL life. Um, our offline lives, it actually trickles down to online life. What I mean by that is whatever is happening around us, the social, the cultural, the political, economic, everything around us in our real life, in our offline life, is actually what is mirrored then in the online spaces. And given that situation, the homophobia towards queer people or like um, homosexual people, the sexism and patriarchal setup that we have around us, the casteism, the racism, that we see around us is now reflected to the online spaces and that, thus the threats and bully to all these minority groups, right? At the same time, I would also like to emphasize how internet is not just social media, which is visible to us, where we see all these violence and trolling, right? But internet is much more than that. It has a whole structure where governments, 
where tech companies, where the social norms and rules that I mentioned earlier, they also play equal equal role. And when I say policies and rules set by the governments and the corporates, it means all the censorship, all the restrictions that we have been experiencing, the shutdowns that people have been experiencing in different parts of the world as imposed by these governments come into play, you know, how these social media companies and other technology are designed, how the infrastructure is designed, how it looks from the outside to us in our mobile phone, in our devices, especially made by humans, right? And these humans have this different set of values. These people have their own understanding of gender, sexuality, caste, disability, race. So their values and and how they perceive different category of people around them is reflected in the design that they make. And as we all know, the technology and and a lot of what happens in the internet is derived and is determined by people in the global north and most probably by white, cisgender, heterosexual men, right? And to answer a second set of questions that you asked, um, what body and data does is both, uh, a bit of both, let's say. So um, at one point, we also advocate for structural changes um, where we would focus more on how to make these spaces more safer for everyone, women, queer folks, people from different castes, class, gender, by advocating um, to tech companies, by advocating around the government policies, making government and tech company accountable, and also making the policy language more accessible. And while we know the structural changes require a lot of time, we also focus on providing people with tools, strategies, and techniques to make oneself safer on the internet while they use it uh, to express themselves freely and safely. Thank you for that. Those are two really good points you made. One about the online world reflecting the physical world. The other one I really also liked is that the the tools that we use in the online world, they're created subjectively. They're created by human beings, people who have certain beliefs, and by a system that, as you, as you pointed out, for a long time has been dominated by a to put it frankly, white males for the most part are built by white males and probably still dominated by white males. So these are not in themselves neutral places. One of the things also that I know Body and Data is working on is getting people's stories out there. So people from these various marginalized groups, um, making sure that they are seen online and that their experiences are online for people to read about. So can you tell me a little bit about how you work to do that? Yes, definitely. We do work around bringing people's story in the online spaces. And we do that through our digital storytelling workshops. Um, And we have been doing this for the last couple of years, Um, mostly with younger people, younger women, uh, queer folks, people with disability, trans people. Um, And why we do this is because, you know, when we look around in the online spaces, we see certain kind of dominant narratives, certain kind of stories being projected, especially if it's belonged to marginalized community. 
there is this dominant idea and narrative of how their lives are. And mostly only one part of the identity is highlighted uh, rather than the holistic picture of how they are and how they experience. So what we what we are trying to do from bringing these stories outside there is making other stories visible. The stories these people would like to take in charge of, the stories that people want to bring in themselves, right? Using their agency, using their own voice and the way they want to narrate it. How we do this is by co-facilitating spaces where people come together um, and share their stories with one another and then decide during a process, usually the workshops last for seven to eight days, uh, where folks go through different stages um, of um, sharing the stories, creating a storyboard, and meanwhile also trying to learn some digital tools that they can use uh, to make their stories more um, interesting or like heard or using different formats. And meanwhile, we also try to bring in concept of digital right throughout this process. For example, right to anonymity, because anonymity is such a great tool for people, especially who are at the margin, to be able to express their voice without being, without feeling threatened, right? So, and they develop it, they put the voice over, um, they want to, if they want to do the comics or art, or they want to narrate the story, put photos together, it's all built by them. And if you'd ask me why digital, because as we know, digital art is going to stay forever, right? We want our stories to live and be shared widely. And to be able to tell stories and share stories the way people want it, I think in that way, we also create history of different existence, of different versions of people, rather than how our society projects it or how the mainstream media would like to show it. Right. Okay. And that's interesting that you, the last point you made about why it's digital. I was thinking, as you said that, that in some ways, at least when I'm looking at the Nepal, Nepali online space, and I guess for me, that's mainly Twitter uh, and Nepali mainstream media. And again, for me, that's mainly English media. Um, I sometimes see that digital is leading. So I'll see things happening in the digital space um, and also on Instagram. I must say that I think Instagram is ahead of Twitter in in discussing some of these concepts and by giving space to some of the groups we're talking about. But I'll see things discussed online and then weeks or months later, I see them echoed uh, in the mainstream media is that a goal or an aim of what you do? Or do you think that's just something that is organically happening? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. I think, you know, we need to look into what is seen as knowledge and, and what kind of knowledge produces is seen as the ultimate truth, right? And whenever people from marginalized community tell their story, it's seen as testimonies only and not knowledge. Um, but when one take in charge and when they are trying to put their stories out either on Instagram story or on a small tweet, uh, you know, with limited characters, um, I think that is knowledge on its own. That's the experience. That's the way they have lived their life. So instead of, I would not say that 
creating this buzz would lead to mainstream media taking the issue on board. But I would say more about how these stories, how these day-to-day stories that people try to bring in and how to bring them in light in front of others. So that, again, the dominant narrative, the one way of looking at certain communities doesn't take over the other realities that people have. Because, you know, there is so much stereotype around queer people, let's say, or people with disability or young women, um, whereas they have so many other aspects of their life that get completely dismissed and hidden from the mainstream media, by the mainstream media. So this just provides a tool for people to use it again and again. Um, to be able to bring their stories forward, right? And I think everyone does it. The only thing that we do here is go facilitate this space uh, so that people are able to choose the tools and technology that they think fits them and use it uh, to make their stories more enriching. Right, okay. So this links to a question I had written down, and I think in a way we're saying the same thing. And, And my question, the nut of my question was that um, it's not simply enough to look at an online space and say, okay, from now on, we want to have 25% of our collaborators be from these various groups. We need to make sure that they're able to come on to take this space and within that space, talk about what it is they want to talk about and maybe do it in a slightly different way. So, for example, if they want to use more graphics and less te- text uh, and do it in a more visual way. Yes, and I think people have been doing this for ages, right? Like mothers, grandmothers, they all have this rich knowledge and, and the way that they share their stories is always so enticing. But somehow that's not seen as aggregated one. It's not seen as something that you would, let's say, you know, reference in your in your newspaper article, right? And that's that's what we would like to critique of why only certain kind of knowledge production is seen as the ultimate one. Why these stories and narratives are not are not considered as the as the thing, right? And why do we need mainstream media to then take the issue? And then project it in a way that is sometimes very problematic and and reinforce the stereotype that is already there. Right. Okay. To jump to another uh, another question, more and more people are, I think, from various groups are going online, are being active online and expressing their their ideas online. And I know also at the same time that the reaction often is from other people, maybe the more mainstream community, if I can call it that, is that that perspective is not, it's too radical. It doesn't represent our culture, art, for example. So a certain type of painting has been done this way for hundreds and thousands of years, um, you know, representing in a style, these particular issues, and suddenly new artists come along and they start painting, you know, using the same style, but different topics, and topics that maybe some people in mainstream society just aren't comfortable with because they discuss sexuality or, you know, more what they see as radical ideas. And and the reaction would be, look, this isn't us. This is not our culture. In, In those kinds of situations, 
would you go out of your way to facilitate a discussion between those different groups? Or do you think it's enough just to provide the access to the new group that has been excluded for so long? Hmm. Yeah, there might be a lot of um, people or institutions or social norms that can come in the middle of creative outlet, right, or creative expression, and then bring in concept of culture or society and sometimes nationality and sometimes national protection um, so that they can maintain the status quo that is there already. And what we know of how society has always been working is by certain people um, exercising more power over others, especially in a society like ours, right? We know people of certain gender, people of certain caste, people of certain um, or class have been taking power over other people. And, and then now if people want to break that status quo, they are going to be threatened because they would feel like their power is going to be taken away. And that's why all these names in terms of culture, in terms of societal values, comes into play. But we all know, like, culture is not static. It, it changes all the time. Um, and especially now in the digital age, right, we are exchanging information across the world. We are exchanging knowledge. And especially when it comes to uh, people who have not been in power, either artists uh, who doesn't do traditional form of art, let's say, or women who now want to express or use their bodies that they want to, everyone is threatened, right? And then um, those who are who have been profiting out of them would want to bring back the the system that has always always been there, and it could include the state. Um, the corporations, right, like the companies, uh, big tech, or in this case, like any capitalistic company, companies or corporation or society in large. I don't know about bringing these two groups together and then having a conversation. Um, I would say everyone needs to have the space to express what they want. And there is enough of space, right? It could be together. Or it could be in isolation to one another. I guess the role that we are trying to play and what I believe in is to amplify the voices and the stories and the kind of expression that are not given space, um, right? Because the dominant um, version of the story is always there. It's always going to be there. But I would believe in amplifying those who are now seen as a threat or who are categorized as quote-unquote radical, right? And then when time, time comes, if people are willing to listen, the negotiation, the conversation would happen anyway, right? It doesn't require anyone from the outside or someone external to come in and then say like, hey, let's come in and like have this conversation. Meanwhile, I think we need to first... Um, first give space to everyone if, if someone wants to express their artistic way of delivering their stories or their art piece so anything um, why not bring them and then give them more space first only then talk about now there's some disturbance what should we do I don't think there is like enough of both the things happening at the same time there's still a huge power 
um, distribution issues in terms of those who have been in the in the power are still using it. So yeah, I think I would I would wait <laughs> for now to have the marginalized group take more space first. Okay, well that's very clear. Uh, possibly clearer than my question was. So thank you, thank you for that. Well, this I think is a an opportunity to segue to my next question, which was when it comes to the authorities in Nepal. So I guess we're we're talking about governmental authorities. They can be um, ministries or security police. I mean, what what kind of work do you do with them and are they receptive to what you're doing? Do they try to work with you or has it is it a bit of a struggle? Yeah, I mean, I have come across this question before as well. I think partly because uh, policy reform is perceived as the ultimate agenda of civil society, all right? Like that's seen as the, the way of making change in the society, whereas movement building is not um, seen as something serious or significant. I think we also need to revisit this whole idea of working with authorities and engaging with them um, as the work of CSOs and the work that CSOs need to do is so much broader than that, is so much more than that, because policy reform and policy advocacy, even if it's fulfilled, right, can only bring about, bring about much change. I mean, it's been proven again and again um, with our laws against caste discrimination or gender discrimination. Only laws are not going to make much difference. Having said that, like we have tried engaging with policymakers and authorities in the past uh, through our advocacy intervention, mostly around policies related to digital right. Um, to give you an example, we had advocated around the infamous Information Technology Bill that was drafted in 2018, which is still not passed by the parliament. But what we faced was there was a big gatekeeping um, in the advocacy spaces, even within the CSOs, even by the CSOs. These kind of advocacy spaces and engagement with the authorities are so inaccessible to organizations like ours, right? And, and this whole metaphor of bring your chair, bring your own chair to the table just doesn't work, especially when you're not a patriarch male from certain caste and class and social strata. Um, and next thing is, there's this hierarchy of what kind of work is important, what we advocate for. Uh, for example, we work around um, digital right and making sure women, queer people and other marginalized groups at the center of it, center of it is not seen as a priority. It is always categorized and trivialized as this small groups issue or like a women's issue or a queer issue or something or the other that doesn't concern everyone. But at the same time, we have engaged with different stakeholders, including policymakers, including lawyers, you know, day-to-day -day people on, um, on different laws. Um, recently, we did a series of consultation around Privacy Act 2018 to look into how this kind of law implicates in our life, in everyone's life. And if we are to advocate, what can we go about? Like, where can we go about and how can we do it? do this by bringing in examples and stories from the grassroots itself, right? And not just limiting it to the policy level advocacy stuff. 
We've also tried to bridge the gap between the whole policy making aspect and what people experience. So by simplifying all these jargons in the policies, making them accessible for people. So last year we published a chart where you can see laws around online gender based violence across, across different um, policies and guidelines, which is cross cutting to privacy or like online safety or freedom of expression. And for us, I think that's also part of advocacy, which is focused more towards public rather than just these policymakers and people who who have upper hand to us. Do you want to say more about um, your work on privacy? I know in Nepal, privacy is, you know, something that is not top of mind for many people. What what are you trying to do in terms of um, privacy of data, for example? What are your kind of advocacy messages and your your asks at the moment? We have been trying to work around privacy and data privacy um, in the context of Nepal for a while. And a big challenge to that is the perception around how privacy is being discussed. It's always seen as this like European or like foreign concept. But when we speak to people... Privacy is still embedded in Nepali culture and and how we how we do our day to day stuff, right? Like uh, people know about privacy by locking their door. They put curtains in some form, form or the other wherever they want to hide things or like you know bring some private element to it. And people do decide what they want to share and reveal to others and what they don't want to share and reveal. Um, I guess what's different here is when it comes to digital age, now the idea of uh, what is private is changed. I think it's mostly because the harm that is there when things are not kept private or when things are revealed without people's consent is not visible. I wouldn't say it's people's fault. Like People are not aware of the harms and threat that might cause to them because their privacy is infringed and their security is compromised because the tech infrastructure is designed that way. Uh, it's not shown to people the information, the right information that they need, they have of how the tech company are using our data, right? Like if I'm posting my photos on Instagram as a customer to Instagram, the Instagram should let me know where are they going to store my photo, who are going to access it, how are they going to use it, should be there, but that is not happening, if I'm using uh, intermediary platforms to deliver food, to get my transport fixed in day-to-day basis, and the recent example of how Nepal government opened this um, online form for the vaccination registration recently, right? Like, I don't know how are they going to store my information, especially if it's personally identifiable information. So I guess that is why this is seen as an alien concept where but if people are to explain okay your information is going here and then you know this is the possible risk that you might have i guess people are going to totally understand what is data privacy and what they would like to share and not share and to whom and when right and and for this we have ha- we have held series of uh, consultations with different groups women young girls trans people, intersex people, people with disabilities, uh, people from law background. And each and everyone had a way of understanding what privacy means to them and how they look at their right to privacy. 
And especially when we look into the concept of privacy from intersectional feminist lens, it was quite interesting to find out how people have been using their right to privacy in their daily lives. Um, and it's just about this bridging the concept of privacy in our in real life and then how that is seen in the digital space. Yeah, and then what we've also experienced through our work, like this recent research that we did uh, with people with disability um, on their sexual expression online um, is people have decided and are deciding when to reveal their disability status on Facebook, for example, let's say, right? People have um, taken in charge of how they want to post their photos on, on dating app, let's say, of not showing their face probably or like only showing certain part of the body. So people are making these choices in everyday basis. Whenever we talk about data privacy, it's, it portrays it is portrayed as this really something techy and 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 scary and something that is not understandable. And that is mostly because people are not disclosing or providing information fully to people uh, to everyone. Let's say in in accessible language. So I think once we have that and not to not make it like a privilege issue. I think people are going to understand and, and make their choices on how they want to use their right to privacy, even in our context. Okay, interesting. I was just this afternoon, actually, um, I got an email from Google, and I'm, not, I'm by no means a fan of Google, but I do use it. Sometimes I feel like I have no choice but to use it for certain things. But it was interesting. I got this email um, asking me to you know, go through my security uh, features on my account. And I did. And I've done this before. I did find, and I'm almost reluctant to say this, that they've made it easier, at least on the surface, to go through the steps that they want you to go through. Now, I'm no, I'm no privacy expert, and I'm not sure that it's covering everything that's important. It seems to me that there is some effort being made by some of these big corporations like Facebook. But I think one thing you didn't notice and I'm interested in is the government, for example, the government of Nepal, for example, is that an important part of where you see a need for advocacy or are you seeing it as just one small player in the whole data privacy universe? Yeah, I mean, you're right about uh, tech companies, especially big tech giants, taking interest <laughs> or like at least trying to show to their customer what they're trying to do to maintain privacy. Um, but sorry to tell you this, Martin, but, you know, I don't think <laughs> it's actually how they would want us to see them, see the platform as, right? Like by choosing certain advertisements, to to come into our feed and not come to come into our feed is also the way they are collecting our data and then categorizing us like okay like this person from this part of the world of this age group would want to see these kind of advertisement but wouldn't want to see this kind of advertisement so it's also a data point for them in terms of nepal i guess i guess now is the very important time that we start talking about these issues on privacy and data privacy um, because the government has um, launched a digital Nepal framework for, I guess, for many years now. 
and in which they want to digitalize a lot of government services. They want to digitalize uh, social security services. And then most probably, ultimately, at one point, they're going to centralize all these kind of information, right? Some data might be personally identifiable. For example, it might be about this person, like their age, gender, like where they live, how much they earn, everything. I think at this point, what we are seeing is um, there is no clear information. There is no transparency around who are the actors behind the scene because we keep reading news. We keep hearing news about like China government supporting Nepal in technology development or, you know, certain companies in Nepal accessing data of, let's say, um, department or the digital national ID card that Nepali people are soon going to get, like it's already been launched in certain districts of the country. So all these interventions are coming into play. And I guess like digitalization and going to online digital form is inevitable. But at the same time, we need to look into whether or not Nepal and the government have skills and and capacity to handle such huge amount of data. We have been hearing a lot of news around hacking of public services, public offices and private offices, right? Like last year, account and server of Thiruvan University got hacked. Um, a lot of private companies um, server were hacked and information about people were revealed online. Just in last local election, people who had registered for their voters' ID their information along with their name, uh, with their, uh, I think, citizenship number is in the website of Election Commission of Nepal government. So while the government is moving towards quote-unquote development, um, especially through using technology, I guess there hasn't been enough stress and enough work around protecting people's rights and, and risk towards um, you know, what happens to them, especially those in the margin, when, when their information is revealed without their consent. So I guess the conversation is yet to happen. And I don't know if there is even space to have that conversation with the government at this point. Um, because like I said earlier, even the gate is already closed. There is no space to intervene. Um, and, you know, like, it's not accessible, especially if you are talking about certain things that are seen as anti-development. And when I speak about things around data privacy, it's always categorized as going against development. The same with like, you know, this road building and development that used to happen years back in Nepal. Now it's coming to technology and development. People who are speaking against the harms that technology might bring are seen as those against development. So that's been one of the challenges that we have been facing. Okay, yeah, that sounds like a big a big challenge, um, actually. And we covered a lot. It's a broad, a broad focus, I know. But is there something else that we didn't touch on that is important you want to mention? I guess I would like to introduce this term, digital rights. Um, so it might sound like this new set of rights now, right, along with women's rights and children's rights, but that's not the case. It just means making internet and digital spaces just and safe for everyone, um, which means having unrestricted access to internet, having access to technology and information, 
And what I mean by that is not just distributing phones and computers to people, but ensuring that they have control to do that without surveillance from the state, without surveillance from the society and family, right? Where people are ex- able to express themselves without feeling the threat and potential violence. And also where their rights are protected, including their rights to privacy, where their consent is taken uh, in a more respectable way, and where there is no monopoly of just like one corporations, but different tech, tech companies or be, different people who are in these fields can harness the power of technology where the power is distributed. While I say all this, um, there is this confusion around uh, privacy and, and online behavior because people might say that, oh, I'm not on Facebook or Twitter. So, you know, I don't need to worry about my, my digital privacy or my digital footprint. But at the same time, the digitalization of different public services is happening in our country. You know, we all are registered in our banks. We have our ATM card, maybe. Even are having to go through online education during the COVID time. So we all are impacted by this. And it's not just agenda of one particular group. And if we are to, you know, have digital right assured, I think everyone is going to benefit including journalists, lawyers, activists, laborers, children, women, and just literally everyone around us. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Um, I think that's a really good point. Uh, some people may feel like they're, because they're not active on social media or other platforms, that online rights are this vague concept that doesn't apply to them. But I think you made it very clear how they do apply to everyone. So thank you, Shuba. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me and introducing some of these concepts. Uh, I think for some people, the, some ideas might be quite new, but I think it's great to give people um, something to chew on, something to reflect over. And uh, hopefully we've, we've done some of that today. Best of luck with all of your work. You have a lot ahead of you on your plate. Um, digital issues are certainly not going away anytime soon. So I, I know you're busy now and you're just going to be uh, busier uh, in the future as well. So thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Marty, uh, for, for the space, for, for this conversation, and for everyone who's listening. Uh, if you'd like to have this conversation even further, because we've just touched like little bits of what we need to do, uh, please feel free to contact us uh, at Body and Data uh, to collaborate, to to listen more, you know, like for anything that you think we need to bring forward to. So follow us on our social media as well, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook um, at Body and Data. Thank you very much. Thank you again to Shuba Kayasta of Body and Data. You can find the organization's website URL in the notes to this show. If you liked what you heard, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can keep up with the show between episodes on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and also LinkedIn. We're Nepal Now or Nepal Now Pod. You can send me your feedback, ideas, or just say hi to marty at martylogan, M-A-R-T-Y-L-O-G-A-N.net. Thank you also to Soraya Logan for her work on the show's social media. I'm Marty Logan. I produced this episode, and we'll talk to you again soon.